Hey everybody, we've got something a little different for you today. Uh, we have a reading of The Pestilence of Pandora Peasley. It's written by Pete Rollick and read by Julia Morgan. In this story, pro-human partisans attempt to overthrow Yithians. Uh, so we'll leave you with that. But before we jump into the story, I would like to remind you that we do have two sponsors for the program, both Birds of a Feather Coffee and Thing 12 Games. Uh, Thing 12 Games is a purveyor of fine dice and card games. So if you're interested in that, please check them out. And of course, Birds Coffee has the legendary brew, along with the regular Birds branded coffee, including the Night Owl Blend. Just a reminder, if you use code LEGENDS10 at checkout at either one of those stores, you're going to get 10% off your order. And we appreciate you checking them out, and we appreciate you listening to the show. Peasley, called by those who feared her Pandora, paused to check that her package was secure. She had abandoned the boat that had brought her from Haiti and sent it to autopilot after the satellite had locked on. Her muscles ached from swimming through the warm Florida waters, but she had no time to rest. She was just a few miles from her destination, but if she was going to make the deadline, she was going to have to hustle. She ran up the sandy shoreline and onto the streets of what had once been Palm Beach, home to old money, and moved through the wreckage of the low buildings that had once been an exclusive shopping district. This area was mostly abandoned. Even the dogs and cats had moved inland. Without the rich, the island had gone wild. Sand drifted down the streets. Saltwater ponds filled parking lots. The grass had died and been replaced with plants that were more tolerant of the sea spray. Mangroves were slowly reclaiming the island. Marching in from the lagoon at a slow but sure pace. As she crossed the bridge over the Intracoastal, she looked south and in the distance could see the Sun Coast Arcology rising up into the sky. Even this far away, she could see the cloud of machines that were flitting around it like bugs on a corpse. Except the corpse was hundreds of years of human effort, being systematically recycled for a bold new future. If only that future had been planned by human minds, she might not be a terrorist. She careened over the crumbling concrete bridge and through the shadows of derelict condominiums and abandoned office towers into what was left of downtown West Palm. City Place and the Kravis Centre for the Performing Arts lay in ruins. Shattered glass windows and barrel tiles littered the streets. Spray-painted purple symbols marked the area as scheduled for demolition and harvest. All this area would be restored to the way it had been before man decided to try to shape Florida to suit his own needs. 
The rest of the world was going the same way. The world was becoming a better, cleaner, safer place. The old ways of doing things had been replaced with newer, better things. She followed a ramp south, moving against the direction of traffic that no longer existed. She crossed over the I-95 and looked at the vast ribbon of concrete and asphalt that stretched both north and south like a dried-up canal. Once, this road had been a river of steel and light. Now it was as dead as everything else, abandoned by humanity in favour of a new way of life, one that guaranteed the survival of the species, but at a price Pandora Peasley couldn't accept. Not that she didn't understand what had happened, she just didn't approve of it. Men should not give up their freedoms so willingly. The first hint that something was awry had been the loss of contact with the Falkland Islands. The British were still trying to figure out what had happened when New Zealand went dark. Things snowballed from that point forward. Sugar theme. Ancient alien machines comprised of weird matter that looked like slime and absorbed anything organic, had been released from some Antarctic prison. The creatures devoured anything that moved. How they had made their way off the frozen continent wasn't clear, but they had a taste for human flesh, and normal weapons did little to slow them down. Humans fought back with devastating weaponry. Most of the lower part of South America was still burning. New Zealand and Tasmania were more radioactive than Chernobyl, and just as abandoned. Her brisk pace took her through long-abandoned office blocks, hotels, and a burnt-out fast-food restaurant. Feral cats had claimed a parking garage, nothing to worry about, but she picked up her pace when something large shifted within the tiered darkness. Her route took her into the airport and she climbed over the rubble of collapsed flyways that had once steered cars from the interstate to the small, bustling transportation centre filled with dead cars. There weren't any working cars anymore, at least not like there had been. Small electric things still flitted through what remained of the great metropoli, drawing power from the grid embedded in the roadway. But that grid didn't extend out this far into the brown fields. Even if it did, any vehicle would have been a clear target for the satellites that now dotted the sky. It had been among the islands that dotted the Pacific that the next threat manifested, though no one at the time recognised it for what it was. The small nations of the Pacific Ocean, all normally fiercely independent, suddenly found a new sense of unity. Some said it was because of the sugar theme, that small areas were highly vulnerable and they needed to ally themselves against a greater enemy. Others weren't so sure, but the result was clear. In a single month, the nations of Kiribati, Tonga, Micronesia, Palau, the Seychelles, Tuvalu and Nauru all lay aside their rivalries and formed the Pacific Union. They rewrote laws concerning data privacy and finances, and within the year were suddenly a financial and technological powerhouse. 
18 months after its formation, Samoa and the Philippines petitioned for membership. Papua, Malaysia and Indonesia weren't far behind. A new global power emerged on the planet, not based on military prowess, but rather on the intersection of money and a technology that seemed years ahead of anybody else. Even the fleet of airships they built, huge whale-like things with no speed but incredible energy efficiency, seemed designed to serve rather than threaten. She jumped a fence and sprinted across the runways. Cattle, egrets and iguanas scattered before her. A covey of doves took flight, screaming their umbrage at her presence. Something large and tawny, a deer, maybe a coyote or perhaps a panther, trotted through the tall grass that had colonized the places between the cracked cement. She could feel the heat radiating off the artificial rock, and a little part of her longed for an afternoon thunderstorm to come and cool things off, however briefly, and even if the subsequent humidity was unbearable. The airships of the Pacific Union were the first to arrive after Typhoon Fabiola had unexpectedly turned north and devastated Japan from Kumamoto to Sapporo. Union forces carried out rescues, turned malls into hospitals and shelters, stabilized nuclear reactors, and made sure everyone was vaccinated against diseases that had been long thought eradicated. The images of Pacific Union airships hovering over Tokyo's skyline became commonplace, and it came as no surprise when Japan's emergency government, operating out of Okinawa, petitioned to become a member state. When the Koreas and Taiwan followed, China protested, and by that point the wave had gathered such strength that it was pointless to stand in its way. She found her way through a gutted hangar and back onto the road on the far side of the airport. She took another crumbling overpass to leapfrog over a canal and come within sight of her destination. There was an old reserve base opposite the shell of a burnt-out building with traces of a gold sign still visible. But her target was the monolith that loomed before her, an imposing angular thing that screamed to be left alone. It squatted on the landscape with a row of thin windows that squinted like eyes, peering out at the surrounding neighbourhood like an angry cat ready to leap and spit and scratch. This was the building that showed the least response to the vagaries of time and weather. An edifice built to last, to be secure, and to keep its occupants under control. Pandora looked at her watch and finally stopped running as she entered the grounds of the Palm Beach County Detention Center. Pacific Union aid centers sprung up across the world and began to tackle problems that other governments, organizations and corporations had either failed at or abandoned. Safe water in Africa, chemical cleanup in the Middle East, food in India, energy and housing in South America, even urban blight in the rust belt of the American Midwest suddenly had solutions, or progress towards a solution. Even Europe and China allowed for the establishment of working groups within their borders. The only real resistance was Russia, a nation that could have used the help, but was either too proud or too stubborn to let foreigners in. 
a new iron curtain went up, just as barriers everywhere else in the world went down. The power in the detention center was still on, functioning at emergency levels that kept the cells locked, but little else functioning. There were other buildings that had better power systems, but they all lacked the ability to remotely operate doors. The plan depended on keeping things under control until the very last minute. Prisons, long abandoned but often with their own power supplies, provided the perfect opportunity to do just that. All she had to do was wait for the right time. With clean energy, clean water and clean food came a sense of prosperity, of unity and of trust. Those feelings left little room for the fear of subjugation. When evidence emerged that the leaders of the Pacific Union had all suffered from some sort of seizure, one that resulted in the total dissolution of previous memories and personalities, it was all too late. People didn't care. They gladly traded exploitation by the Western powers for exploitation by people who looked and spoke as they did and took care of their needs. In a quarter of a century, the Pacific Union had conquered the world without so much as firing a shot. Pandora moved through the dilapidated building with a sure-footed accuracy, dodging broken-down furniture and decaying concrete. Weeds and scrawny trees had taken hold in walls, drawing light and rain from cracked skylights. Bugs had found their way in too, mostly mosquitoes and dragonflies. There was also a large paper wasp nest that buzzed angrily as she passed by, forcing her to dodge right and bounce off of the wall of holding cell. Something inside moaned ominously and the steel grate rattled as its strength was tested. She softly cursed, put her hand on her gun and slowly backed away. She eyed the shadows moving beyond the weak light, waited for them to settle and then took off running again. She had to reach cover. The exercise level, 12 stories up, had been prepared, stocked and fortified. All she had to do was avoid being caught before she got there. Three years of planning was about to reach fruition. All around the world her sisters were following the plan and, like her, leading their own pursuers into similar situations. After today, the world would never be the same one way or another. Once the plan was in play, it would take only hours to wrap the world in terror. Two stories below her, the entrance exploded in a shower of glass and cheap aluminium framing. She glimpsed a dozen shock troopers as they stormed through the smoke and ash. They wore insignia that harkened back to various law enforcement agencies but the laws they were enforcing weren't in any municipal or state code. These men were enforcing new laws, written by their new masters. And those masters may have looked human, but that was only a one. It had only been after most of the world had submitted to the Pacific Union that its leaders had revealed themselves as something inhuman. The world had been invaded, and the invaders were creatures of pure mind, cool, ancient, and alien intelligences that brought with them solutions to all the world's problems. 
All they demanded was complete and unquestioning obedience, and most people readily complied. The only ones who hadn't had been those who recognized them for what they were. People like Pandora's parents. People who gave the invaders a name. The Yith. Pandora Peasley, fifth daughter of Robert Peasley and Megan Halsey. You have been tried in absentia and found guilty of crimes against humanity. A warrant has been issued for your execution. Surrender now and I assure you that the method will be painless. His voice was nearly void of emotion. Pandora looked at her watch. Her pursuers were right on schedule. Her schedule, not theirs. Hopefully everything she and the others were doing wasn't on the Yithian timetable. The Yith were time travelers. Aliens that had, eons ago, discovered a way to mentally move through time, leaping forwards and backwards, stealing bodies and infiltrating societies, all on the premise of doing research. They were obsessed with gathering historical data and documenting eras they considered historically important, while ignoring events that men might consider critical. Pandora's own grandfather had fallen victim to their machinations. He, like many others, had been released from their grasp, but only after they had finished with him. The event had devastated the family. Her uncle had become obsessed with the Yith and hunted them down whenever he could. In contrast, her father had spent years trying to avoid the taint that had cursed his family, only to be drawn into altogether different, but just as sinister matters. That may have had more to do with her mother, who had seemed born to the mysterious and macabre, and had drawn her husband into the darkness with her. The resistance had grown up out of what Pandora's parents could tell them about the Yith and how they behaved. Pandora and her friends in the resistance, and that is what they called themselves, no fancy names or acronyms, simply the resistance, didn't particularly like what had become of the world. They knew more about the universe, but less about their government. They were building power stations, but not families. They understood chemistry and physics and ecology, but not command structures and decision-making. In the eyes of the resistance, humans were becoming technicians, leaving the leadership to their new-found masters, masters that often went unquestioned about motives or goals. When the Resistance found the first baby factory, children engineered to be stronger and faster than normal humans, Pandora knew it was time to act. She and her sisters formulated a plan, gathered like-minded friends and started a worldwide underground network. They'd been on the run, building to this day, ever since. On the side of the stairwell, she found the hole she had cut that led into a utility shaft. It was tight, but she squeezed through it and found her footing on the stirrups of the zip line. She clipped herself into the harness and squeezed the regulator. She flew up through the darkness as the weights she was connected to fell down. She whisked past rats and loose material at breakneck speeds, clearing the rest of the floors in seconds. 
At the top, she stepped out onto the roof and cut the line with her knife, making sure no one could follow her using that particular route. She walked away as some overzealous trooper fired up through the shaft. The bullets stopped almost immediately, and she could hear the soldier being berated by his or her commanding officer. She threw the first switch on the control panel. She needed the troopers to be oblivious to what was going on around them. The aging speakers blared to life and babbled out a cacophony of pre-recorded noise. Animal sounds, growls and shrieks and cages rattling. Sounds designed to mask the noises of what was going on in the prison itself. While her enemy climbed the stairs, she slipped into her combat armor, a Kevlar bodysuit with matching gloves and boots with magnetic combination locks. Over that, she put on an impact-resistant vest and strapped on articulated leg armor. A harness went over her neck, giving her huge shoulders and a high steel collar. The flexible neck rings snapped into the helmet in three places. The last piece of her defence came out of her backpack. This is what she had gone to Haiti for, and what so many others had given their lives to create. Dr West swore that it would work, that he had tested it and it had proven adequate to the task. Adequate didn't make Pandora feel very good, but that was all she could get out of the madman who pretended to be a scientist. Pandora threw another switch and powered up the building's internal sensors. A bank of micro-monitors jumped to life as cameras in the stairwell suddenly began to broadcast. Grainy images of the men moving up towards her position. She flipped on the microphone, tapped it and spoke. Can I ask you a question, Mr. East? Pandora watched as the alien raised his bullhorn. It blared again, echoing through the stairwell. By all means, but it won't change anything. What are you doing here? Why did you invade? My grandfather believed you weren't interested in humans, that when you finally left the Mesozoic invertebrates, you were going to leap past humanity into the future, after men had gone extinct. What changed your minds? East located the camera and addressed her through it. We were perfectly content to leave humans alone. But then we started having problems. Somehow, someone here figured out how to exclude us. We can't insert any agents, and any that we drop in beforehand never return. We are not fond of dead time. You and your little band of rebels, or someone like you, have blocked us. We came to stop you from creating the dead time, or failing that. Finding the generator and destroying it. Beneath her mask, her face screwed up in puzzlement. How exactly am I responsible for that? She flipped another switch and whispered a tiny prayer, hoping that her trap wouldn't be noticed for a few more minutes. Timing was everything. Around the world, similar traps were being sprung. A few minutes warning and the great race might have enough notice to escape back through time. We don't particularly know. He moved to the next camera, cautious steps flanked by scuttling human soldiers. We gave your people 
one of your relatives actually, the technology to block us over small areas once. We used it to build a prison for some of our own less desirable members. We assumed you had figured out how to widen the application of the barrier. So you invaded the world and conquered the planet because you couldn't see what we were doing? Pandora chuckled. When exactly are we supposed to have erected this barrier? She switched her attention to the other screens. There were things moving in the prison. The cell doors were springing open. Mr. East looked at his watch. We lose contact in exactly three minutes, unless we find your equipment and destroy it. Pandora threw the last switch, the one that unlocked the doors from the stairwell to each floor. The actuation was time delayed. She had less than a minute before things got really bad. Is that how time works? Can you change the future by altering the past? If you destroy the machine, the barrier will fall. But then why would you invade in the first place? What about causality and paradox? Time isn't as rigid as you humans would like it to be. There is fluidity. You may not be able to break the laws of time, but you can bend them. Once we find your machine and destroy it, the barrier you will erect will never have been. But we are already here. We can't simply be erased from existence. That's what my grandfather said. He warned me that using time against you would be pointless. He said you were grand masters, that you played the long game superbly, and as long as you had players on the field, you would be nearly invincible. I knew your grandfather. Spent some time in him. He was clever for a human. My parents were much more clever. Did you ever meet them? He was on the floor below her. Your father, Robert Beasley, I never had the privilege. I knew him by reputation. I've read his file. Endora Pandora Peasley pulled the plug on her control board and then smashed it with the heel of her boot. Did it ever dawn on you, Yithians, that I might take after my mother? She had an alias as well. Twelve soldiers swarmed out of the stairwell. Red dots appeared on her chest, but not one man pulled the trigger. Your mother was Megan Halsey, the so-called reanimatrix. She had access to a primitive reanimation formula. Pandora went down on her knees, trying to appear less threatening. We've made some improvements over the years. Beneath her mask, she smiled. We didn't build a field generator, Mr. East. We didn't try to exclude you from the game. That was likely impossible. We just found a way to keep you from using any of the pieces. A sense of panic suddenly filled Mr. East's voice. The rest of the Resistance, where are they? He barked orders at his troops. Find them! Kill them! Pandora assumed a crouched position. You still want to kill the Resistance? Pointless, really. I'm afraid they're already dead. Mr. East fired a shot and struck Pandora in the shoulder, spinning her around and knocking her to the floor. Her armor was barely scratched. 
Whatever you and the Resistance have conjured up, whatever you've cobbled together, I assure you, we shall end it here and now. You and your friends will be liquidated. Pandora sat up, rubbing her shoulder. I told you, Mr. East, the Resistance is already dead. From the darkness of the stairs, broken shapes moved and stumbled up onto the roof. They had been men once, and alive, but they weren't either anymore. Pandora's formula, her reagent, had transformed them into something bestial, something subhuman. They shambled out of the cages they had been held in and with each step gained speed. There were hundreds of things pouring out onto the roof like ants swarming a piece of candy. There were only a dozen armed soldiers, and the unstoppable wave of undead washed over them. Gunfire did little to slow them down, and as man after man fell, the desperate sound of the remaining soldiers and their pathetic guns did little but serve as an attraction to the things that screamed and bit and spread their infection. This is your plan, Miss Pandora! Mr. East shouted, marching towards her, swinging his gun back and forth between his quarry and the things that were tearing his men apart. You've weaponized a reanimation reagent, made it contagious. I assume some sort of retrovirus. Do you really think we can't put a stop to this plague of yours? She tore the package open and revealed the sigil beneath it, a stylized, tentacular thing that seemed to crawl out of infinity. Ease hissed at the thing, but anything he was going to say was drowned out as Pandora began to recite a necessary bit of poetry. Strange is the light which black stars doth shine, and men become monsters beneath a yellow sign. Lost Carcosa rises ruined, but stranger still, sending ravenous hordes bent to Ishtil's will. You dare! Mr. East was screaming, but Pandora could barely hear him. The chant filled her ears. You invite the Yellow King? Are you mad? He will lay waste to this world, warp everything to his own corruption. For the first time ever, she saw fear in the eyes of a Yith. Please, don't do this. We would have given you a paradise. He fell to his knees and scowled. Do you really think that you can control it? Do you and yours think you can bear the mantle of the king? Hear my words, little girl. The pallid mask will give you his power. A taste of it, at least, but in time. It will worm its way inside. It will gnaw at you, corrupt you, and leave you a hollow, empty shell. The undead paused as he emptied the clip in their direction. But only for a moment. Across the world, Pandora's sisters continued the invocations that would bind the undead members of the Resistance to their service, and in turn dedicated themselves to the service of Hastor. In the sky, the sun slowly declined into a yellow sign, pulsing with a sickening rhythm. Better to rule in hell than serve in heaven, she whispered softly. The curtain had been drawn, the song of Casilda sung. The second act was imminent. It was time for the king in yellow to send his terrible messenger. Her army, her subjects, thousands of undead fell prostrate before her. They were hungry, she could sense it. They were ravenous, capable of consuming all they could lay their hands on. 
it wasn't enough. It would never be enough. Through time and space, the yellow sign took its measure, and upon the world the dead time fell. Somewhere, in what was left of her humanity, Pandora Peasley hoped that someday, somehow, some men, some humans might survive. But not today. Beneath her helmet, the pallid mask settled into its rightful place. Pandora Peasley assumed the role of Hittil and headed south toward the Arcology. Her army followed. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.